0: Okay, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, reading from verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So look, his disciples ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's what they ask him. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And his first answer isn't precisely to their question. He doesn't precisely answer their question. Because he says in verse 3, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not a question of, initially, who's the greatest. It's a question of entrance. I mean, there's, there's, there, you don't worry about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the least, if you're not getting in anyway. You see, their question was very specific. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer is, unless you are converted... Which, which means turned. Unless your heart changes and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's not this thing that, oh, God you know, is going to let everybody into heaven. That's not the case. Jesus was very specific. God doesn't let everybody into heaven. There's got to be a conversion of heart. There's got to be a change in heart. Without a change in heart, You don't get into heaven. And that's what it says. So first of all, he establishes, well look, not everybody's getting into heaven. There's got to be a change of heart. You've got to have something like a child, a childlike faith. You have to have a belief. There's something there. Or else you won't enter the kingdom of heaven to begin with. Then in verse 4, he answers their question. So he establishes first, then not everybody's going to get into heaven. So it's not a question for everybody. The more underlying question is, are you going to be converted in order to get in? But now in verse 4, whoever then humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You mean there's the greatest and then the not so great? Well, actually, Jesus specified many times that there are different levels of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And I know that there's this socialistic mentality that everybody goes to heaven. Jesus just established that that's not true. And again, the socialistic mentality that we're all equal in heaven. Well, that might well be in your own mind or in my own mind. But not in Jesus' mind, who's seen heaven. He said that there are different levels of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So, for example, look over in, in, in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So again, Jesus points out that there are different levels here. The Bible is actually extremely logical. We are the ones who are I- illogical. The Bible is extremely logical. Jesus speaks of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And in this verse, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, he speaks of Being the least in the kingdom of heaven or being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He says those who take his commandments and then annul them, in other words, make them ineffective and so teach others to walk wrongly, And not obey his commandments are going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. There's other verses in the Bible that says, Do not all desire to be teachers, for teachers shall undergo a stricter judgment. Because teachers have the potential to annul a commandment by not teaching it. And so make themselves least in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says quite clearly, clearly there's going to be those in heaven who are least and those in heaven who are greatest. And the ones who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus speaks of different levels in heaven. There are also levels on earth. Look in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, it speaks of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, that among those born of woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus said that John the Baptist is the greatest man that has ever lived. Jesus said that. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And this tells us that what we are in the Spirit far exceeds what we are in the flesh. No matter how much greatness there is in the flesh. You know, people think, oh, you know, this Jewish guy, he's Jewish. Oh, how wonderful. Let me me touch him. (laughs) But that means nothing compared to membership in the kingdom of heaven. Because he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than... Than anyone on earth. What we are in the kingdom of Christ far exceeds that which we are on earth. Far exceeds it. So no matter how great a person is. You know we saw this little film in church about Joe Savory and just all these great things about him. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest baseball player. But Jesus, again, speaks of he who is least in the kingdom of heaven. So, in other words, there is a least and there is a greatest. Jesus speaks of different levels. The Bible is actually very consistent. People sometimes wonder, what's the difference between when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? It's actually, they are synonymous. Because you can see in the same instances, the same, the, the same occasions, Jesus, The Bible translates it in both ways. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The reason that in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel according to Matthew, it speaks of the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God is because Matthew was written to the Jew for the conversion of the Jew. And even to this day, the Jews do not use the word God. You will see them write G-D. Because they say God's name is so holy Lest they defame his name, they don't even want to write his name. So if you see any Jew, any Orthodox Jew writing, or religious Jew writing the name of God, they'll write G-D. Even sometimes when they write Lord, they'll write L-R-D. Lest they somehow defame his name. So Matthew very specifically talks about the kingdom of heaven, whereas the other Gospels refer to the kingdom of God. In the same context. Of the speaking of Jesus. Because Matthew is appealing to a certain people group. But anyway, he speaks of these different levels. Now let's turn back to to Matthew. Now that we've established that there are different levels that Jesus spoke about. Both in earth and in heaven. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Whoever then humbles himself. Whoever humbles himself. As this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble myself? I'm supposed to humble myself? I thought God humbles me. Could Jesus be right here? Could this be a proper translation? He who humbles himself. So, I type this, humble himself. Or humble yourself. I typed both of them into my little little, little electronic Bible. And over ten times in the Bible, it speaks of humbling himself. And over ten times in the Bible, it speaks of humble yourself. So either humble himself or humble yourself is used over twenty times in the Bible. Both Old Testament and New Testament many, many times. So, this idea of one humbling himself or God instructing us to humble yourself is actually quite clear in Scripture. So, it's not so much, oh God, humble me, humble me. God's saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself. He said it over 20 times in the Bible Humble yourself. He's saying, God, humble me. He says, humble yourself. There there are some things that God does in our lives. And there are some things that God tells us to do in our lives. Go ahead, stand there in the morning and say, God, wash my face. God, wash my face. God says, wash your own face. There are some things we do for ourselves, right? There are some things we do for ourselves. We wash our own face. We wash our own hands. God says, while you're at it, humble yourself. So I started looking up all these passages about humbling oneself. And I'm going to just run through a bunch of these as we we go through the Scriptures. And some of these I'm going to tell you to turn to, and some of these you just listen. Because I'm I'm going to be ad-libbing it. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 3, Pharaoh, it says that, that, that... Pharaoh would not humble himself. Not that God was supposed to humble Pharaoh. The Bible says that God wanted Pharaoh to humble himself, and he refused to humble himself. And we know what happened to Pharaoh. Right after that passage, God sent a bunch of locusts on his land. And then, you know, one plague after another, waiting for the man to humble himself. Look in in 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 Kings chapter 21. You've got Samuel, then Kings, and then Chronicles. So turn to to 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're going to look at a man named Ahab. Now Ahab was a really bad king. Ahab was really mean. But he, he was kind of a weak king, but he had a really strong wife. His wife's name was Jezebel. And and this is why you never meet women named Jezebel anymore. I mean, you would never name your daughter Jezebel, unless you knew nothing about the Bible. Because Jezebel is spoken of both in the Old Testament as a very wicked woman, and then in the book of Revelation, it brings her name up again. I mean, she was really bad. And Jezebel used to control Ahab. Ahab, you know, he wasn't bad to the core, But his wife was so wicked to the core, she used to direct him any way she wished. And on one occasion, he wanted a plot of land next to his palace. Now, that plot of land was owned by another man. And Ahab went out and said, I'd like to buy this land from you. And he says, I'm not going to sell it. He says, this was an inheritance from my father. And in Israel, the land is considered an inheritance and they weren't supposed to sell the land. They were supposed to pass it on to their children. He says, I can't sell. This is an inheritance. It's going to my children. So Ahab went back to the palace all dejected because his offer for buying the land that he wanted, this vineyard next to his, his, uh, his, his palace, was, was, was not taken. And so Jezebel walks in and she says, Ahab, what's wrong with you today? He says, Well, you know, I, I wanted to buy this land and the guy wouldn't sell it to me. And she says, Aren't you the king? Don't worry. I'll take care of it. So she goes out, she finds some worthless men. Two worthless men say they've they've heard the landowner there curse God. And so they stone the man. So he's dead. And so Ahab is free now to get the land. And so Ahab really didn't set the thing up, but he was compliant with it. And then in 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab After coveting this man Naboth's vineyard and getting it, judgment is proclaimed upon him by the prophet. Elijah is sent and prophesying the destruction of Ahab and his household. Verse 25 of of 1 Kings chapter 21. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols, according to all the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. So look at how bad this guy was. I mean, he followed idols, he killed people. I mean, he's just a really bad king. I mean, really bad. If you think you're bad, you're not as bad as Ahab. I guarantee you, if you were as bad as Ahab, you wouldn't have come here this morning. Ahab was much worse than you. You say, well, how do you know that? Remember, there's different levels both on earth and in heaven. Ahab is much worse. Verse 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring this evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon, upon his house in his son's days. This really wicked guy gets blasted by the prophet Elijah, saying, God is just going to tear you down, tear down your family, he's going to kill you. It says that Ahab humbled himself. Himself. He humbled himself. And he started fasting. And he put on sackcloth. And he went about despondently. You know, beating his breast, saying, you know, I blew it. I really did wrong. And the amazing thing to me is, God forgives him. Instantly. I mean, instantly. Worshipping idols, leading Israel, leading Israel into idols, and all of this stuff. God forgives him Instantly. He says to Elijah, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself in verse 29 before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I'm not going to bring the evil on him in his days. I mean, here Elijah had just been sent and proclaimed this long discourse of judgment over Ahab and his household. And now all those words are for naught. Because the man humbles himself. Humbling oneself changes the whole situation. He said, this is too easy. This is God's mercy. He humbled himself by fasting, by not putting on his kingly robes, and by walking around despondently, meaning he really felt it. He said, this was really bad. The way I allowed Naboth, Naboth to be killed so that I could have his land. This was really bad. He recognized what he had done. And God immediately says, look at him. He humbled himself. The instruction of God, humble yourself. As soon as Ahab did it, God sought. And God relented from the judgment that was going to come upon Ahab. You say, well, why did he bring it upon his son? Because his son was wicked and never humbled himself. Had his son humbled himself, he would have deferred it again. The next book is 2 Kings, and then you got 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. If you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 12. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, it talks about the life of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. So you had David was the first king of Israel. Then you had Solomon, his son, and then his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam's mother was an an Ammonite. Because remember, Solomon had many wives. He had like like, like 700 wives and 300 concubines, something like that. And so one of his wives was an Ammonite. She was not a Hebrew. She was from Ammon. And her son, Rehoboam, became king. That's the son of Solomon. Solomon. And Rehoboam did not walk in the proper way. And judgment came upon Rehoboam and upon his kingdom. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1, When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Hey, look at that. When the kingdom of Israel was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. You mean when I'm established and strong, I'm more liable to forsake the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. And God allows hardship in our lives to keep us seeking Him. God in His mercy allows hardship. Because when we get Big contracts and big deals and all sorts of accolades and all sorts of attention. Guess what? We are wicked and we become super ugly. And it says, when they were established and strong, they forsook the Lord. Why do I have to go to church? I mean, what's the big deal anyway? I mean, I love God. Why do I have to bother going to church? Because you teach your family the ways of the Lord and you keep yourself in check. Because when you submit yourself to the body of Christ, to the local leadership, and you say, I submit myself and I respect the authority of the local church, it has impact in my life. Here is a man, here is a leadership that can speak into my life to tell me I'm doing wrong. That is a good thing. That is a very good thing. Without that, we would go astray. When you're not a part of a local church, you end up going astray attendance in a local church doesn't do it because attendance doesn't speak of authority in my life. But if Roger or the pastor were to say, hey Jim, you know, we think you're going the wrong way here, I would immediately drop it. I wouldn't go that way. Or I would explain myself and see if, if, if they, they understood what I was doing. Because... A man who strays from under authority of the local church, and I have seen this so many times, his wife and his children stray from his authority in the home. And the home just blows up in disorder. You take a man who is not under authority at work and in the church, people will not value his authority. You want people to function under your authority? Come under authority. And when he was established and strong, he went astray. And when we're established and strong and healthy, then we don't need the local church. We feel. And then God in His mercy allows the Egyptians to attack. In verse 2, And it came about King Rehoboam, in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because he had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the people who came with him from Egypt were without number, the Lubim, the Sukum, and the Ethiopians. And he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam. And the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I have forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. Look at that. He was going astray. The armies of Egypt come and attack. The prophet comes and says, You've forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. And he humbles himself, he and his princes. They humble themselves. What does God say? Humble yourself. And he does it. Verse 7. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. Wow. Wow. You want to talk about mercy? I mean, this is too good. What a deal. Immediately, as soon as they humble themselves, and they say, the Lord is righteous, humbling oneself is to proclaim, I am wrong, the Lord is righteous. He is righteous in what He is doing to me. Or allowing to be done in my life, because I have forsaken Him. I humble myself. And in so doing, God immediately sees and immediately draws. And God says, I'm not going to let him attack your city. I'm not going to let him take Jerusalem. You see God's mercy in one humbling himself? A man commits adultery with a woman, leaves his family. After some time, he sees that his life doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets worse. Instead of hardening his heart, if he would fall on his knees and humble himself and repent of his wrong, some measure of order could begin to come back and would begin to come back. There are some things that may never be restored, but his relationship with God can be restored. And some measure of peace will return. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, it talks about Josiah being sensitive to the Lord. He humbled himself. Josiah had not done anything wrong in particular. What Josiah did was he loved God with all his heart. No kings before him for many generations had really sought the Lord. And Josiah said, go clean up the temple. Go clean up the the temple. It's all dirty in there. Nobody's taking care of it. And as they're cleaning it, they find the book. What book? The book. The Bible. The one copy they find. I mean, it di- didn't include Second Kings yet because it hadn't yet happened. But the books of Moses, the first five books, they find it. And he says, hey, start reading that to me. So they start reading it to him. And when he hears it, he says, great is the judgment that is due upon us because we've not obeyed those words. And he tore his clothes, and it says he humbled himself. He himself had not done anything particularly wrong, but he being the king, took upon himself judgment that was due upon the nation. And he says, go find a prophet, and find out what's going to come upon us. And they find a prophetess, a woman. And she starts prophesying that indeed, all the curses that are written in that book are going to come upon this land for its disobedience. But she says, But you, O King Josiah, because your heart was tender so that when you heard the word of God, you humbled yourself and you tore your clothes and you fasted. This judgment will not come upon you, but God will bless your days. He had a sensitivity to the word of God so that when the word of God came, he says, "Uh uh-oh, I've done wrong rather than... (laughs) That doesn't apply to me. Let me find a nice verse here. Blessed are you. (laughs) I like that verse. I mean, he read the whole thing. It meant something to him. And he humbled himself. Look in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This is a story of Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst. The absolute worst. Manasseh was really bad. And, and so Manasseh was 12 years old when he becomes king. And if you look in Second in, in, uh, Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations who the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah... His father had broken down. He also erected altars to the baals and made the ashram and worshipped all of the host of heaven. He worshipped them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, "My name shall be in Jerusalem th- forever," for he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft and divination. He practiced sorcery and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I mean, look at the list here. Look at what he does. This guy is the worst. Manasseh was the worst king. Worse than Ahab. He used to take his kids and throw them into a fire. For an offering. Imagine taking your children and doing that. Thinking you're going to garner favor from God. And so judgment comes upon Manasseh. I mean, this guy, it says blood flowed through the streets of, of, of Israel. Look in verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations which the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. I mean, this guy was really bad. So you know what's coming. Verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought commanders of the armies of the kings of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him, with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord of his fathers. And he prayed to him, and he was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, God is too kind Look at what Manasseh does. He kills people. It says blood just flowed through the streets of Jerusalem in Manasseh's day. It says they came, they took him. God spoke to him, but he wouldn't listen. God speaks to us, will we listen? And then it says that they took him in bronze chains and with hooks. They hooked them in their body and they dragged him to Babylon. You know, Babylon's far away. Babylon's up where Iraq is. He's in prison. You talk about jailhouse religion. He got it. In prison, what does it say? He humbled himself greatly. What did Jesus say? He who, is, who humbles himself will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The same words. Humbled himself. He humbled himself greatly. And he prayed to God And God was moved by his entreaty and drew him back into the land. Put him back as king. I mean, this is really quite amazing, God's mercy. Why? Because you humble yourself. This is not something that we wait for God to do. God says, you do it. You humble yourself. You humble yourself. Numerous other examples. Amnon. It says Amnon was was Manasseh's son. It says Amnon was not like his father Manasseh because he didn't humble himself. In Daniel, it talks of one of the kings, Belshazzar. He says this judgment is coming upon you and upon your kingdom because you didn't humble yourself. You knew the truth. You knew what God did for your father, Nebuchadnezzar, who was really his great-grandfather. But you didn't humble yourself. And then it says of Daniel that the the angel came to Daniel. Why? Because he humbled himself. Daniel had done no wrong, but he took upon himself the sins of the nation of Israel and he humbled himself. And the angel came. What does it mean to humble oneself? Turn to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Is it is it merely... Fasting, well, that is a part of it. I'll tell you, you, you'll stop feeling really great things about yourself if you fast for a few days. You think you're strong? Fast for a few days. You realize you're not very strong. Um, You think everything's all in order in your life? Fast for a few days. You get a whole different perspective. We see how weak we really are. And in Isaiah 58, God God starts speaking about what it really means to fast, what it really means to do things. He says, he says, for example, he says in verse 5 of Isaiah 58, Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day of the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Look what he says. He says, it's not just fasting. It is changing your life. Fasting is a part of it. Repentance is a part of it. But remember, there's these three things. We beg forgiveness, and that's what these men did. They would beg forgiveness of God, and they would repent. Asking forgiveness is different than repentance. This is asking forgiveness. I am sorry for what I have done." That is not repentance. That is asking forgiveness. Repentance is, "And I turn from what I would have done, and I will never do it again. We turn away from it. And if we do it again, we ask for forgiveness and we turn away again. Repentance means turning. Repentance means turning. There is asking forgiveness, and there is repentance, turning from one's sin, and then there is rebuilding that which our actions destroyed. And that is what God is getting at in Isaiah 58. We rebuild that which our actions destroyed. And that's why uh, in the New Testament, when Zacchaeus says, and if I've defrauded anyone, I pay him back fourfold. There is a desire when it comes to truly humbling oneself. We beg forgiveness, we turn from our wicked ways, and we try to restore or rebuild that which we have broken down. A man goes, and here is the typical path for the Christian man. Meets the young lady. They start going to church. After a while, he has to work really hard and he makes a zillion excuses why he no longer has to go to church every week. And little by little, he goes to church less and less. And little by little, he's working more and more. And then, lo and behold, he's working so much, things get tense in the home with his wife. And as they get really tense with his wife, he's not enjoying his wife. She's not enjoying him. She doesn't think much of him. He doesn't think much of her. And then there's this young lady at work, his secretary or some other young woman, who really kind of appreciates him him and thinks he's really something. Because he makes the big salary and he's got a lot of money and he thinks, she appreciates me, my wife doesn't appreciate me. So one thing leads to another, he ends up sleeping with her, divorcing his wife, leaving his wife and kids and moving in with this young lady. This is a very typical scenario in the church. You and I probably know lots of people like this. And then after a while, he realizes things are no better than they really were to begin with. Because now he's got a bunch of other kids and this woman doesn't appreciate him much now anymore either. So he's got to go turn to another one. And he leaves this string of hurting women and hurting children. And women do the same thing. There's many women who run off and commit adultery on their husbands. And it starts with little acts of disobedience, And not being faithful in the body of Christ. And not taking on leadership so somebody can speak into your life. Is there a prophet in your life? Is there a prophet in your life? By a prophet, I mean a pastor who when he says something, shows you something from the Word of God, you go, Gulp. Uh Uh-oh. I'm sinning. This is what we all need. The other person who has trouble is sometimes the great pastor, the great teacher. They lose track of the need that they have for someone to be able to speak into their life. And people see it in their lives and nobody wants to speak to them because they're the great Bible teacher. Who am I to be able to speak to them because they're the great Bible teacher? Well, that great Bible teacher needs to submit himself to the authority of a local church and be in submission, in interaction with a pastor, lest he go astray. And it happens. It happens. And as soon as they step out from under, being under authority, their wives start having trouble and their kids don't listen to them either. And God says there is an immediate path to restoration. And it starts with humbling yourself. In James chapter 4, verse 10, it says, You know, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and you will be exalted. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. It talks about humbling yourself, you will be exalted. The Bible says, pride goes before a fall. You know, pride is so disgusting and everybody sees it in our lives. Everybody sees it except ourselves. It is written right up here. It says, I am proud. And it's in really ugly lettering. But everybody can see it except ourselves. And it's repulsive. And God says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be him who humbles himself. Like this little child. Jesus says, humble yourself. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to close with this. Because it gives... It gives a, a simple prescription which can keep us on the right course. Especially when we start feeling... Like we're more than we really are. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, reading from verse 1. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, reading from verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make by joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember, Jesus never asks us to do what he himself didn't do. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. There's this striking thing it says. It says, regard one another, verse 3, as more important than yourselves. Struggling with pride? Let me give you a little trick that the Scripture teaches us. Regard the other person as more important than yourself. And it helps you to deal with pride. Look at this person and in your heart say, They are more important than me. They are more important than me. And this is God's little prescription for keeping us from becoming too proud. And oh, it slips in so easily. And God in His mercy allows our kingdoms to begin to fray at the edges. So you're going to humble yourself? View these people as more important than yourself view these people as more important than yourself. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus says, humble yourself. That is what you and I do. It's not up to God. God says, it's up to you. Humble yourself. God allows our kingdoms to slip away. But remember, the picture that we have is, no matter how far it's gone, It can be redeemed through humbling ourselves. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your command. Humble Yourself. Father, I pray that You take these young people and You so teach them to walk in humility, to regard the other as more important Than themselves. Father, that they would learn to walk in humility, humbling themselves. Father, I pray that you would take these young men, and as I've gone through this typical scenario, that they would learn to not stray from the obedience to the local church, to not become so cocky that they feel that they can do without it, that they need not have anyone speaking into their lives. Father, may they walk as men of God uprightly, leading their families in the right way. And Father, I pray for the young women here, that they too would walk in humility, humbling themselves, and walk in service to You, so that they may have good lives and blessed lives. And Father, I commit them to You, in the name of Jesus. Amen.